Welcome to The American Ingredient, a podcast that examines race in American society from an academic perspective. Focusing on the work from social scientists and legal scholars, The American Ingredient demonstrates that race is not the only ingredient in making America, but in order to make America, you need two heaping spoonfuls. One of the things we know about politics is that it's about groups. And this is very clear during elections, as you see politicians work to form coalitions by bringing various groups together. Whether it be like the New Deal Coalition of the 1930s, which put together blacks, southern whites, as well as working class whites, or be current coalitions of progressive whites and blacks or of white working class and religious conservatives. In elections, we see politicians attempt to build coalitions and try to bring various groups together under one tent to help them advance their cause to gain office. Today, we will be hearing from Professor Andrea Benjamin of the University of Missouri, where she will discuss her work on multi-ethnic coalitions, specifically focusing on how ethnic cues play a key role in forming these coalitions and maintaining them. Professor Benjamin focuses on local elections and attempts to show how these coalitions take shape, how they're able to maintain themselves, but also some of the things that may hurt them in the long run. Throughout the interview, you will hear from Professor Benjamin's partner in crime, her cat Blake, who's named after a basketball star, Blake Griffin, will chime in from time to time to offer his opinions on her work. Please pay attention to what Blake has to say. It's very in-depth. We begin the interview today with Professor Benjamin talking about why studying local elections is so important. My research is on local politics, and part of the reason that I study politics at that level is that most municipal elections take place in a nonpartisan context. And so while we are used to thinking about partisanship as a, as a very powerful and extremely useful cue, in the local context, those cues are taken away. And in some ways, that creates a different set of incentives that I think candidates have and communities have around the type of coalition that they might be able to build, um, specifically because the candidate names won't have a D or an R next to their name. We rely on other cues. And in my previous work, which thought about bigger cities in some ways, so much more urban context, um, looking at Chicago, Houston, L.A., and New York, What I found was that co-ethnic endorsements ended up being a useful way to think about communities signaling to members of their community, this is who might help us and support us if they're elected to office. Um, And so building on that, thinking about a 25 to 30 year period of local elections in those four cities, I developed a series of experiments to try to test the causal mechanisms, trying to determine whether or not Blacks and Latinos are receptive to these cues. You know, it should be noted that not every minority candidate tries to build these coalitions. Um, and also white candidates are often also trying to kind of build these types of coalitions with voters. Um, but for African-Americans, co-ethnic cues are powerful. In many contexts, they rely on them. For Latinos, the relationship is a little bit weaker. And um, I think that the you know other scholars have done better work on this to try to think about possibly because of the identity choices that that group has, even in the political arena. But in a national survey, I, c- I could get Latinos to move towards Black candidates in particular when they were given um, this co-ethnic cue that a Latino organization had endorsed the Black candidate. And so again, there are some differences, but um, I-, I think that one of the, the outcomes of the research is that I think I offer candidates a way to think about 
how to build those coalitions. And once they build them, how to effectively communicate them such that voters will support them. How can candidates build successful multi-ethnic coalitions? You know, I think it really goes back to listening. And maybe that sounds um, (laughs) rudimentary in some ways. But I think that that one of the the results in, in both of my experimental chapters is that issues really matter, right? So even a white candidate Um, Just seeking a Black or Latino endorsement does not do better among Blacks and Latinos as voters. And what that means is they need a context. So for the white candidate to to appeal effectively to either of those groups, it needs to be in the context of a racialized issue or a racialized campaign. Now, of course, there are limitations. I don't think I would advise any candidate to run an explicitly racial campaign. But what it suggests is that as a candidate, if you're seeking out group support, you do need to be on the right side of issues. So... It's not a good time in in the current context for uh, a candidate expecting or seeking out Latino support to say that they're going to partner with ICE during the the current climate that we're in. Right. So in my current work in Durham, you know, there's been some previous research that blacks and Latinos were being stopped at an unnatural rate. This is a time for those candidates to talk about how they want officers to go through racial bias training, how they want to work with the police department to ensure a culture that treats our citizens with dignity and respect, right? So that you have to be on the right side of the issue. So in that sense, if there's anything that people take away from it, it's not that Blacks or Latinos blindly follow these endorsements. It really is a a combination of of issues with the endorsement as sort of an extra seal. I really can't overemphasize that the endorsement alone is not enough um, for white candidates. For minority candidates, though, for African-Americans, for example, when Latino candidates receive black endorsements, there is a shift um, and the, the Latino candidate doesn't need to talk about issues. And again, given the, the, the history around minority candidates and racialized campaigns, that, that's a useful finding. Again, I wouldn't suggest any mi- to any minority candidate, hey, I have this really good idea. You should run a racialized campaign. I would actually caution them against that. When we think about these multi-ethnic coalitions, we can think of either a white-black coalition, a Latino-black coalition, or a Latino-white coalition. But there's also concerns about leadership. What do you see as the future in terms of the leadership of these coalitions? Um, you know, we're really in a time where it might be that the new biracial coalition is really Latino candidate-led, right? Because whites seem more amenable to it. Blacks are amenable to it in the context of these coalitions and with these endorsements. And, and so it might be a good a good strategy that if we want that type of representation, that a Latino candidate can do the work to build that type of coalition. Again, going into communities, thinking about the issues that that those that black communities and maybe some progressive white communities want, and running on those issues, getting the black endorsements, and, and moving forward, and that they might win. Well, do you have any uh, reasoning behind why white voters are more supportive of the Latino candidate than the black candidate? You know, Latino candidates have choices, right, about how how they sort of portray themselves, not portray themselves. That's true. They have identity choices. And there are ways in which, you know, some Latinos are racially white. And so they don't, you know, they don't have to say say too many things. But, you know, some of them are obviously racially black. But I think when they make the choice to run in an explicit black Latino coalition, they they are making a racialized choice, right? And so that's an option that Black candidates haven't ever had. And so in that sense, exploring that dynamic is something that I, I have a paper on, um, although that paper also takes into account partisanship. Um, so it's a little bit different. But I want to say that there's probably some some better research on sort of hierarchies and that maybe Latinos are preferred to Black candidates in some ways, um, just in the hierarchy of people's minds. 
Now, one more thing that you've mentioned quite a bit is that in the local elections, there aren't party cues. Can you talk a little bit more about why party is so important for understanding uh, the coalitions that we take shape or understanding the black and Latino vote at the national level and why the local level with the absence of partisan cues in terms of somebody's running as a Democrat or somebody's running as a Republican changes the way people interpret candidates? At the national level, the coalitions are, I think, much more more clear. You know, in 04, there's sort of this controversy or this talk that, whole oh, Bush did so well with Latinos. But by the time we get to 2008, Right. Barack Obama does pretty good around in the 60 percent of Latino voter support. 2012, it goes up a little bit more for African-Americans, of course, you know, wh- whether we think that African-Americans are captured, a la Frimer's argument that even if they don't love the Democratic Party, the, the reality is Republicans aren't courting them, whether or not we think that there's a stigma. Right. I think um, Phil Potts work thinks about this, that blacks can be conservative, but not necessarily want to be called Republicans. And of course, you know, when referring to Frimer, Professor Benjamin is referring to Paul Frimer's work, Uneasy Alliances, Race and Party Competition in America, where he discusses the difficulties African-Americans have in the two-party system. When referring to Philpott, Professor Benjamin is referring to Tasha S. Philpott at the University of Texas and her most recent work, Conservative But Not Republican, The Paradox of Party Identification and Ideology Among African-Americans. In particular, Professor Philpott finds that the connection between partisanship and ideology amongst African-Americans is not as strong as it is amongst whites. She finds that African-Americans who identify as conservative are almost just as likely to identify as Democrats as African-Americans who identify as liberal. And of course, you know, in the last, even when Barack Obama ran, you know, there were calls for African-Americans to abstain, right, To, to try to get the parties to pay more attention to them. Of course, that didn't happen, right? So in 2012, right, even more African-Americans vote than in 2008 in terms of numbers. So obviously they're not listening to that. But I think that there is some underlying concern around whether or not even the Democratic Party is best for African-Americans. Although, again, at this current time, I'm not sure that there's an alternative um, that feels feasible to them. But at the local level, right, I think, again, that it's just a different context. And so there's a different set of issues, right? So in a local context, um, you will find that candidates are often very similar on the set of issues. And of course, the type of council manager system or council strong mayor system, the type of governing system in a local election really matters. So most local um, contexts uh, have a city manager. And so that person is really tasked with running the day-to-day business of the city, such that the council's really left to oversee a subset of issues. A lot of it is zoning, right? The way that we get things done. A lot of it is uh, you know, development where things are going to go. Um, day-to-day life things, trash pickup, water, sewage stuff. Um, But in that sense, right, we don't find as much diversity of issues, right? So there's not a candidate in a local election where candidate A is running on more affordable housing and candidate B is running on less affordable housing and let the market decide, right? We don't see that very often. And so in that sense, this also creates an opportunity for these co-ethnic cues or cues from other organizations to really matter, Right. So in a local context, maybe your local Sierra Club is offering an endorsement. So, you know, that if you value the environment, you follow those endorsements or some other organization that you trust, because, again, the issues are so similar. Um, One of the best quotes I think I've heard on this came out of 
I think it was the 2009 Houston election. And basically the Houston Chronicles headline was just like, all the candidates are the same. So voters are left to rely on endorsements to make this decision, right? That because there's no partisan cue and the, the, the type of issues and the issue diversity is so, so small, voters are really looking for other pieces of information to help them make a decision, right? And so I think that that creates another incentive for a different type of coalition. Um, and, and again, I believe that these co-ethnic cues can really help these voters um, make those decisions, but it's not even just co-ethnic cues, right? Again, you could, maybe your church, maybe your pastor has an opinion and he can't vocalize it or she can't vocalize it publicly, but they've con- communicated that information and that's how you decide. Professor Benjamin, you noted the importance of co-ethnic endorsements. Did you realize they're going to be this important when you started the project? Sure. I mean, so as I mentioned, I'm not sure that I thought that they would be as important as they were going into the project. But it turns out that they are something that is used a lot in elections and it's publicized a lot. So it becomes this very public cue to the point that even if a newspaper doesn't endorse, they will report on endorsements. Then organizations send out mailers with their endorsements and then candidates list. They usually have an endorsements tab. So in 2013, in the Los Angeles mayoral election, um, we did some, you know, I, I worked with someone there and we collected some exit poll data. And one of the grad students created this spreadsheet of, of every endorsement that was mentioned in that campaign. And it's up to like a thousand are mentioned. And so in some sense, it's interesting that we don't know what they mean. And I can't tell you what they mean in terms of sheer numbers, right? So it's not as if one endorsement guarantees you 10 votes, 50 votes, a thousand votes, right? But even without knowing that, candidates are excited to get them. And in the local context, especially around organizations, it's a very specific process that takes place um, that usually involves some type of interview, some type of candidate questionnaire, whether or not that's made public or not. So even though I can't tell you what it means, I know it's important because people keep making it important, right? And so endorsements exist at every level. But again, I think that the local context is a unique situation because there are other cues that are lacking that we could get at other levels, whether it's the state level, right? Those are partisan. The national level is partisan. And so it just becomes this unique opportunity. And so then endorsements, you know, I I think that they matter. And um, in some work that I have that's almost ready to come out, we just sent the page proofs back. Uh, One of my undergraduate students and I um, have a paper on this in the city of Durham, and we sort of control for a bunch of other things. We still know that partisanship kind of matters in local elections, even though the queue is there. And so um, in terms of candidate support for a city council election in 2015, we include, you know, the race of the voter. We include partisanship, ideology, age, education, gender. And then we asked voters, are you aware of who a candidate was endorsed by? And we also ask about some issue preferences. And so awareness of a candidate's endorsement is significant and positive across all six models. So the voters are very aware of these endorsements. And it's not causal, right? So I'm not saying that they that they cause voters. But again, even if you thought, oh, no, it's just partisanship. Partisanship only explained vote choice for, I think, two candidates, um, education for a couple of candidates, you know, gender, ideology matter for maybe one candidate, right? So that across all the models for each candidate, which there were six candidates in that election, you know, the awareness of the endorsements was, was still a strong predictor. Um, and so we're still kind of fleshing out what we think that means sort of a, as we move forward with the rest of this project. But, but I think that's interesting, right? That even if people say, oh, they don't matter. Well, I, again, I can't tell you that they put someone over the top, but the voters are very aware of them. 
And so I think in that sense, they matter because we continue to send out the mailers. We continue to advertise. The newspaper continues to report on any endorsement announcements as if it is news, right? So to the extent that a voter hasn't had time to do their research, um, is maybe on the fence about particular candidates, I think they can use these endorsements as intended by these organizations, which is we vetted the candidates, we've done the research for you, use our information. Could you also argue that endorsements provide legitimacy to candidates as well? A hundred percent. So this is something that my co-author and I, Alexis Miller, who is in her first year um, of grad school at the University of Virginia, we really went back and forth on this, right? Because I think in the early version of the paper, it seemed so innocent, right? And I maybe that's not the right word, but we just viewed these endorsements as very unbiased. Um, we did the research, we interviewed the candidates, we endorsed this person, we had a body, you know, our membership voted, it was deliberation. But then we started thinking about it and the title of the paper is Picking Winners, right? Because we think that the organizations are also calculating a level of viability, right? And so if a candidate is great and is right on all the issues, but has raised a dollar, I don't think they're going to get the endorsement, right? They need to show and prove that they can win because that's what the organization wants, right? They, they, they have a set of preferences, but those preferences won't matter if they can't translate them by winning. And so there, it's, a, it's a fine line. Um, and I just did an interview uh, two weeks ago here in Durham with our regional AFL-CIO, so the Triangle Labor Council. And... You know, the person in charge was explaining to me their process and he said it. He said, you know, what? it's a it's a mixture of issues and viability. Right. And so they're really trying to find that balance. Thus far, we've been talking about your book project and how you have examined uh, elections using survey experiments and using a variety of survey data of various cities. Currently, you're working on a very in-depth one-city project focusing on Durham, North Carolina. Can you tell us a little bit more about this Durham project? Thank you. That's such a great question. I'm really excited to talk about the Durham project. So in some ways, um, I think when I was explaining my book earlier, it just sounded like experiment, 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 experiment. And that is kind of how the book feels. So with the Durham project, it feels more personal. It feels like the reader is going to get to know candidates and get to understand processes that are sort of left unsaid in the first book. So here it's much more qualitative. I think I've conducted over 30 interviews now, maybe 35 interviews with candidates running in 2015 and 2017 with organizations, again, trying to understand their process. How do these endorsements come to be? What is the process by which your organization determines them? Um, people who are serving on city council, how did you run? Did you seek out the endorsements? And so in that sense, it, it feels more personal and that I think the reader will get a better sense of sort of some of the details. In other ways, it feels big, right? So we have two sets of exit polls. So we're fielding a poll right now um, in the 2017 election. We have the 2015 data. But the other thing is that I really believe that this project is generalizable. I think many cities are facing what Durham is facing. We have come to a place where our city is economically developing, right? So cities are sort of, you know, having a rebirth. People are moving back to the city and that has brought us gentrification. So now in light of gentrification, we have a new group here who is much more wealthy. They have more disposable income and they want nice things. And that's great. And that's great for economic development. So we've seen cities sort of respond to that. We, you know, downtowns are thriving. And at the same time, cities that are not the cities that we think of, not the cities from my first book, are getting new immigrant groups, right? And so it's been an exciting time, right? We have new people coming. 
And those two new groups are putting a pressure on our ecosystem, right? And so um, as we develop downtown and we say, oh my goodness, there's all these nice new condos. Some of them are going to cost a million dollars. People who have lived in this city for 10, 20 years cannot afford those condos. And so they're being displaced. And that's sort of an issue that a lot of cities are facing. Um, and what I'm really trying to understand is what does it mean for groups to incorporate, right? So thinking about how do minority um, candidates, Blacks, Latinos, liberal whites, how do we get into office? Um, how do we make sure that we can ensure the policies that we think are beneficial to our city become a possibility? And I think in this context, again, like in Durham, we've had a Black mayor since 2001. Um, so by Browning Marshall and TAB standards, we've been fully incorporated. But over the eight, eight councils that we've had in that time, there's only two councils, so only a four-year period where the council wasn't majority Black. So Blacks have done well here. And yet, Blacks are more likely to, to, be, to live in poverty here. They're more likely to be harassed by the police here. There's such a class divide, such that if you're a middle-class Black, yeah, you, I think you think Durham is great. If you're not middle-class Black, you're struggling. So what is it meant to have this representation, right? And then to think about now there's new groups coming. How are we going to keep the city the, the way we want it for the people that have lived here and been here and still accommodate and accept our new, our new residents, our new neighbors, right? And so I think that's really what the book is about. Um, and I think that I'm still, in some ways, I'm not in the early stages of it. Obviously, I've collected a lot of data. But until this election in November is done, I can't tell the direction that we're going because we as a city haven't decided. And so I think that there's, you know, I think that there's a lot going on. I think people are really excited about electing a new mayor. But as I like to tell people, um, the mayor, we have a city city manager system. So our mayor and council is seven people and they all have the same vote. And so in addition to that, we also need to think about our council members, right? So who are we electing totally that we think is going to move the city in the, vision, in the direction that we think as a voter is the right direction, right? And so that's really the choice that we're being faced with. But the candidates are similar but different on some stuff, right? And so it's been interesting to watch the community engage with them um, and watch the candidates sort of appeal to those, those blocks. And it's, I can't even predict who I think is going to win, um, which is probably the most exciting thing about the election is I, too, on election day, in addition to collecting data, will be just, just waiting to see the result. And I'm really excited. What I love about this project is that I think it allows me to go deeper and to think a little bit more fully about sort of what are these endorsements mean? Where do they come from? How do communities respond to them? Are they important? When are they important? In a way that I couldn't do in the first book that I was just trying to establish a baseline that, hey, people use them, right? And so now trying to figure out in what context, why, how, um, and thinking a little bit more broadly than even just racial and ethnic organizations, right, to think more broadly that there are more types of organizations and how do people use those cues in that in this context. Uh, now, one thing I do want to do is I want to, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that was the, the work of Browning, Marshall, and Tab regarding, um, I guess, Black inclusion, so post-65 Voting Rights Act. Could you explain their argument and how their argument is attached to what you're doing? Sure. So Browning, Marshall, and Tab... Um, you know, in, in, in as nerdy as a way as possible. I mean, it's one of my favorite books. Um, and so what they did is develop a theory using 10 cities in California in, in a context under which, you're right, minority voters, it's post-1965. We, we finally get to participate without many of these barriers. And so that opened up uh, an opportunity to shift governments. And so again, I said earlier that local governments are nonpartisan, but it was true that in California at that time, most governments were dominated by a, gov a, co a conservative governing coalition. 
So even in cities, I mean, we think of California so liberal, but at that time, local elections, local governments were pretty conservative. And so that means that the policies that are coming out of the city are also conservative, right? Because in order to make these policies happen, you need a certain number of council members and the mayor to move forward on it. And so that created a context for three groups. Um, And it's hard in these contexts to think about it, but minority voters, right? Black and Latinos, Hispanics at that time, African-Americans and liberal whites to really build that coalition. Now, what they did was they looked at 10 cities in Northern California and they ended up coming up with one. So it's really a couple of things. One, they create this political incorporation scale, you know, zero meaning you didn't have any minorities on the council. Two to three, you had two to three, three to four, you had three or four. And then by the time you, if you were on the council and it was, you, you were a part of the governing coalition, you could be coded like a five or above, but you couldn't become a nine, a full incorporation until your city had a minority in the mayor's seat. So that's one part of it. But then they thought about how do we achieve that, right? So what I like to call the routes to incorporation, right? Or I guess they call them that too, right? These routes to incorporation. And so what they found was the most successful route was called the Biracial Electoral Alliance. And they observed this in Berkeley. And what that was, was a minority candidate building a coalition, equal partners with liberal whites to make sure that a a minority candidate could win office. And they observed that only in Berkeley in their 10 city study. Second to that was a, a called co-optation, where it was white-led, um, so b- minorities are the junior partner in the coalition, but you still elect somebody who is, um, it could be a minority or a white candidate even, but the, that needs to be a liberal white candidate. Now, one of the things that beco- ends up becoming really important is the ways in which population size and maybe class come in, because in Oakland, where they had a very large black population, less liberal whites, but still, right, if we're thinking about the three factors, it still should have led to incorporation early. There's also some class differences. And really in Oakland, there's a heavy reliance on protest, which is sort of demands for, for appointments and demands for things. And only later did they use the electoral route more um, uh, consistently. And then there are some cities where, you know what, for some reason, whether it was a minority population was too small, or there just wasn't enough liberals, that there was just no demand, right? And so that led to zeros, or at least ones or twos at a minimum, on these on the um, political incorporation scale. As we see from Professor Benjamin's work, multi-ethnic coalitions are the future of American politics, specifically at the local level and possibly at the national level. And the ability for these coalitions to be formed and maintain themselves is based upon the reactions of elites the creation of Black and Latino coalitions have potential, but also have potential to fall apart. So it's very important as we go forward and looking at local elections, where partisanship is not as important, of how other cues come into play and how they may dictate the future of American politics. Furthermore, if you're more interested in the opinions of Blake the Cat, you can follow him on Instagram at Blake Griffin the Cat. Thank you for listening to The American Ingredient. I'm Eric McDaniel, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas. I would like to thank Michael Heidenreich and Jacob Weiss for their assistance, along with the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the University of Texas's LEITS Development Studio.